because Montand, you know, he had the debonair thing, the dashing thing. He had the winning smile, but Montand also had the the fucking like he had like ice water in his veins. Oh like my I God. would I would cool believe as a cucumber. Him, yes, as a fucking killer. And get this, he could also do the song. He could also himself do the damn song, you know? When have you had that? Never. Yeah. Has a has a Bond ever sung the song? You blew it. Could have been Eve Montan, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nope. <laughs> Speaking of Bond, really quick, Ryan, we didn't even get to really discuss it, but I forgot, you know, when you were rewatching all the Friday the thirteenth movies, yeah. We never even discussed which is my favorite of the Jason movies, part six, and it's opening, which has the the Bond thing at the beginning, remember? Oh, yeah. Doesn't he, like, throw the knife at the camera? Yeah. Isn't that what happens? I'm trying yeah. to remember. I was a little stoned. Yeah. He's, it's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's in, like, the circle, and it's right. Jason, like, walking, and then he, like, throws a fucking, like, machete That's at the right. camera or whatever. That's right. Very good. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. It's hot out there. That's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and with me are... Ryan Saunders and Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week and the other two hosts program movies in response to that theme. And we come on here and we uh, put it all together or try to anyway. And it was my topic this week, it's episode 125, Hugs and Kisses. And like I said at the end of last episode, this was not uh, my topic, but friend of the pod, Alex Sherman's idea uh, that he gave me a couple weeks ago in response to uh, the, the copious amounts of blood and guts that was being spilled on the podcast, thinking about a curveball, a way to mix it up. And so I dropped on you the the hugs and kisses, didn't really give you much direction, uh, but this is why I, I love the gauntlet and why I love doing the gauntlet. I can, I can throw it out to you and uh, you, will, you will interpret it uh, in a way <laughs> that, uh, that is very fun. And we got hugs and kisses on the table tonight, folks. We've got it all, we've got singing, We've got dancing, we've got sucking, and we've got fucking. Uh, We've got it all, Uh, and many hugs and kisses in between. So uh, let's get started. Uh, Andy, you had, of course, the earlier of the two films. Why don't you tell us what you brought? Absolutely. I knew what I wanted to pick uh, pretty much immediately when we received the prompt the topic it's a movie that uh, i saw relatively recently only a a couple years ago for the very first time 
Um, my dad had recommended it to me. My dad had said, you, you, you need to see this movie. If you've never seen this movie, oh, it is just, it's, it's, it's one for the ages. And um, it seemed appropriate to me as well, because at the center of the film, uh, certainly the, the, the hugging aspect is really uh, uh, at, uh, sort of revolves around three very good friends. And I thought, how appropriate to bring a movie about three good friends to a podcast featuring three very good friends. So yes, the, the film certainly has platonic, shall we say, hugs, but does also have quite a few romantic kisses in it as well. It's a very, very beautiful uh, film, a very interesting and unique film as well. Uh, and, and also, I should say, um, you know, I was really taking to heart uh, you know, when we did our 100th episode and, and you folks had done your, your, your breakdown of, uh, the gauntlet by decades. And it had been pointed out that I was, was shamefully lacking. I was caught lacking in my selection of films from the golden age of Hollywood, from the golden age of the studio system. I had like, I think no films or maybe one film from like the 1950s. So here we are two weeks in a row. I've gone to the 1950s, to the golden age, to the classical Hollywood studio system this time. And the film that I brought is It's Always Fair Weather from 1955, directed by two good friends. Well, for a while anyway, Stanley Donnan and the one and only Gene Kelly. This is a... Uh, a, a big MGM musical, but one of the last great MGM musicals as that so, sort of like uh, mode of cinema, genre of cinema was starting to, to lose some of its luster in the classical, you know, Hollywood studio age. Um, it is a film about three friends played by Gene Kelly Dan Daly and Michael Kidd, they play Ted Riley, uh, Doug Hallerton, and Angie Valentine, respectively. And as the film opens, we are introduced to these men off to war. They are in the midst of World War II when we're first sort of laying our eyes on them. And we get basically a very quick sort of upbeat, happy montage as they march across Europe, ultimately ending with VE Day and their return to New York City as, uh, you know, guys who are, who are being demobilized back home. And they are, boy, just the best of pals, the best friends in the whole wide world. And uh, they, uh, they're sort of, uh, you know, celebrating, happy, it's all good vibes. And uh, uh, the, the bartender <laughs> at the end of the night basically tells them, like, will you guys fucking relax? Will you take a chill pill? Sure, you're best buddies right now, but in a month, you guys won't even remember each other's names, you know? You might have been close right now, but hey... 
you know, uh, you, you guys are, are going to drift apart. It happens to everybody. It happens to all good friends. So they uh, place a bet with this bartender, Tim, the proprietor of Tim's Bar and Grill. And they say, all right, Tim, in 10 years, we're going to walk in this store and we're going to be the best friends you've ever seen. Nothing's going to change at all. They are so sure of themselves that the bond that they have cemented across the battlefields of Europe will carry on for the rest of their lives. Then we're treated to another montage where 10 years elapses and, you know, we can suss that out in a little bit more detail later, but... Lo and behold, it is now 1955, 10 years later, and things are very different for the trio. And they sort of reluctantly all wander back to this bar. Uh, most of them, I think, believing that, you know, the other guys aren't even going to show. And they reunite. And this initial happy reunion quickly fades as these guys realize they have absolutely nothing in common and nothing to say to one another. Uh, this is really then where the film sort of takes off from there, and they spend one wacky, zany day together, uh, drifting apart and, and perhaps rekindling their friendships, learning some lessons, learning things about themselves. And Gene Kelly also falls in love with the great Sid Charisse. There's a lot going on. Um, it's a, a, a musical. It's filled with great dance numbers, some very inventive and very fun dance sequences as well. But I think what's also really interesting to me about this film is it's often been described by a lot of people as, you know, the most cynical uh, Hollywood musical ever made. I think that's a sort of reductive way of, of describing it. I don't think necessarily it's an extremely cynical film, but I do think it's a very nuanced film and has some very interesting and very thought-provoking things to say about friendship, about aging, about life in general. Um, in addition to that, you know, this is just a ripper for me. It is just an all-time dudes rock kind of film. I love it so much. And um, I think there's a lot of really interesting stories to also sort of talk about with the film, considering to something very ironic, which is that the, the friendship and partnership of Stanley Donnan and Gene Kelly uh, you know, which had, you know, carried them through their, their many other collaborations prior to this, both in feature films, on the stage, uh, in just sort of like innovating dance throughout, you know, Broadway and, and Hollywood history. Uh, that friendship came to an end, an abrupt and disastrous end during the making of this film. Stanley Donnan has said over the years that this was one of the most miserable experiences he ever had making a movie he hated every minute of being on that set so there's something very to me too sort of extra bittersweet about seeing this movie about friends drifting apart and the grand result of it being a sort of uh, end of a creative partnership and friendship for Don and, and Kelly and then Kelly married uh, Donnan's ex-wife yeah 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 well and you know I mean, you know, I, I also learned that, that Dan Daly at a certain point married Donald O'Connor's ex-wife. You know, lots of weird... I mean, that's classic Hollywood The showbiz oh, uh, yeah. stuff, you know. Yeah, that's entertainment. You yeah. want to talk about the real show, you know. That's what's going on. But, but yeah, you know, I think it's a, it's a really interesting and, 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 a, and a beautiful film. Uh, and I, I, I thought it would be a, a, a perfect 
uh, way to sort of look at at the the hugs and kisses of friendship and romance in classic Hollywood. So that is It's Always Fair Weather. Thank you very much. Ryan, why don't you tell us about your film, which uh, I believe came out in our favorite year? Yes, yes it did. It was one of the deciding factors that I felt, ah, I can't resist. The golden year of 1974. Andy spent, you know, Two years going to the the golden years of Hollywood, I went back to the gauntlet golden year, 1974. And so I had heard about the Hugs and Kisses prompt a while ago. It was very soon after Alex introduced it. So that was like mid-October. And when he brought it up, one film immediately came to mind. <laughs> and it was this one. And when he brought it up again, it was still a film that was lingering in my head of uh, a filmmaker who I've been very interested in seeing some of his work and I've long sort of put it off and I thought this could be a really unique opportunity (laughs) to bring something very different to the podcast uh, a type of film that we haven't really explored we've we've had rather steamy episodes with um, some rather erotic things in them however we've never actually looked at a film from the golden age of pornography well and I mean, Emmanuel was, <laughs> that had some hardcore shit in that, you know? What, did that have, like, full penetration? Oh, yeah. It did? Am I just misremembering? When they're at the, like, the, the sex, like, resort, you see, like, full-on fucking mm. ejaculation and shit like that. You see sucking and fucking in Emmanuel, the one that we watched, mm. or at least the version well, that I watched, anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, you're right, you're right. I'm misremembering. I guess it has, like, a little bit less uh, presence as the, as the film I, as I went with. Um, but, you know, I, I had long understood the, that uh, the film I ended up choosing kind of had this reputation where, yes, it was full of sucking and fucking, but it was really about the hugs and kisses along the way. So I went with Passing Strangers from 1974, directed by Arthur J. Bresson Jr., I feel as though a lot of Arthur J. Bresson's films have been kind of being brought back into the conversation as of late because there's been a sort of a smattering of restorations. I think one of the most well-known films of his, if not the most well-known film, is Buddies, which is not a pornographic film and is the first film to depict the AIDS crisis. That's the one that's sort of most readily available. But the thing about Passing Strangers and much of Bresson's work is that Obviously, for a time, it was quite difficult to make queer cinema in America, and often the only way to make thoughtful queer art films was through what would be traditionally seen as a disreputable art form, the erotic and pornographic film industry. So Bresson used that format, the, the, the porn film, to also then explore gay life in in America. And that's what we have with Passing Strangers. This film doesn't disguise the fact that it's a pornography. We have full-on penetration right at the top. But this is a film that is more concerned about love and relationships and is full of so many remarkable documentary qualities of 
gay life in San Francisco in the mid-70s. The film itself, the story, is about a man named Tom who is 28 years old and puts an ad out uh, in the personal ads in the newspaper that is calling for a passing stranger. And he uses a Walt Whitman quote to have as his, as his, um, as his piece calling out for someone to reach out to him, trying to find connection in San Francisco. A young man named Robert, who's 18 and is in the early stages of exploring his sexuality and coming to terms with it, responds to this ad. And the front half of the f this film is in black and white as their pen pals. And they're deciding that they're gonna meet up and see see where the road takes them. And then throughout in that first half, you know, there's lots of sucking and fucking, but it's it's anonymous sex. We have like some orgies, we also have some fantasies. But then when these two men meet, the film shifts into color photography, and they have then this extended idyllic day. It's this gorgeous, colorful footage of them having, riding around on bicycles, flying kites, sitting on the beach, fucking in a field of flowers, and then also attending a gay pride parade. It's just this lovely thing. And it's kind of a hard film to do like a broad overview of without getting into the particular. So we'll be able to do that together. But you know, in, in a sense, it's the ultimate hugs and kisses because this film really kind of has no conflict. Um, and I think that, you know, there's tension in the lead up to this burgeoning romance and these two people finding each other. but. It's just so much about these grace notes and these beauty moments along the way, and its depiction of a subculture that was not being represented on screen in American cinema at the time. And I mean, I think the best way of encapsulating what this film feels like in terms of its eloquence and beauty and taking its time to depict uh, something that can be seen as pornographic, but also in a way that resembles almost like late 60s experimental, experimental cinema, can be through the image of the actual ad in the personal ads in the film, where we have the Walt Whitman quote, and it says, Passing stranger, you do not know how longingly I look upon you. You must be he I was seeking. I have somewhere surely lived a life of joy with you. You grew up with me, were a boy with me. I ate with you and slept with you. I think of you when I wake at night alone. I wait, I do not doubt, I am to be with you again. And then just below that, it says, woman want to be driven to ecstasy by young black. Um, and I think that this film, right, as explicit as it is throughout, because it's got it all, it has this beauty and this eloquence and this tenderness that really warmed my heart. Uh, it's certainly the most effective pornography I've ever watched in terms of touching my soul. Um, I think it's a really, really beautiful film, and I'm excited to see more of Arthur J. Bresson's work. Again, a lot of the stuff recently got restored. There's this really funny named production company, well not production company, but organization called Anus Films, riffing on Janus Films, that has been uh, heavily involved in restoring a lot of uh, queer cinema from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, but yeah, I'm interested to like hear your guys' reactions, and it's an interesting pairing in the sense too, because Bresson was a lover of classic Hollywood cinema, and himself felt as though he was raised on the set of West Side Story because he was being filmed outside of his place. So Hollywood musicals have a very special place for him, as does film history, which even gets brought up a few times in Passing Strangers. So I definitely see a link between the hugs and kisses we have this week. So excited to talk about that. So that's Passing Strangers. Thank you very much. Yes, 
lovely contrast this week. We have, on the one hand, the famous freed unit at MGM. You know, the best of the best of the golden age in CinemaScope, in color, with the full resources of the dream factory behind it. And on the other hand, we have basically a one-man band, you know, uh, a rotating crew like uh, orders. I saw there were four cameramen on, on Passing Strangers, you know, so just thinking of the threadbare nature of it. And both of these movies are, are awesome. And like the different, you know... Yes, just like the different production styles, it's just like, especially with Passing Strangers, it's so artful. I mean, and it's obvious that It's Always Fair Weather is very, very artful. I mean, it's so well done. Uh, but so is Passing Strangers in its own way. It's so poetic. And it's so, like, I'm such a fucking, like, junkie for that 60s avant-garde uh, sort of feeling. And... Mm -hmm. About halfway through the movie, maybe a little little more, I, I realized this film has no sync sound, you know? Yeah. None to the end. And we can get into that because when they meet, they don't have dialogue. There's just music and sound effects. And then I started thinking, like, it's kind of a musical in that way. But even mm. even more than that, pornography and musicals uh, have a sort of link, which is that they're kind of like spectacle-based more than narrative-based, or at least they they stop the narrative to be like, hey, you know, on the one hand, yeah. <laughs> we have a dance, on the other hand, we have sex, right? So, like, yeah. there is in their construction uh, already a similarity. It's like, what do you do between the moments of spectacle, and then what do you do with the spectacle? Right. And then how do these things sort of like work together? So I don't know. It just struck me that, yeah, they're uh, in many ways, <laughs> they sort of have something going on. And it's like they say in uh, It's Always Fair Weather, right? Like, uh, like music is greater than words, you know, and I feel like both films are showing us like this, these hugs and kisses through the form, not through what people say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think... Uh I think that link is yeah it's 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 very apt because it's it's also important to to recognize that in you know uh postcode Hollywood like dance became always a sort of I think stand in for for eroticism and sexuality that they they couldn't like show that a, a dance number was a really good way to present physical intimacy to yeah. um Astaire and Rogers are, they're they're having sex when they're tap dancing yeah absolutely know? they're they're making love you know and uh it was also an opportunity to show off body parts and movement and and physicality and and all those kinds of things and and yeah, you know, that's why I think a lot of the great dancers in classic Hollywood were these like, you know, overt sex symbols for so many people. I mean, my dad, even when when I was like, oh, yeah, I'm bringing it's always fair weather to the pod. His like first thing that he like texted me back was 
Sid Charisse, longest legs in the business. You know, it's like, it's true yes. though. I mean, you know, it's absolutely true. So, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a really good connection. I mean, like, look, when, when I, when Ryan and I were first talking and I was like, oh, I'm thinking about showing this. And he was like, well, I'm thinking about this. I mean, it was like pretty much like a done deal. You know, it was like, <laughs> all right. Yeah. I mean, it makes, it makes sense. And there was not much deliberation beyond it. You know, <laughs> no. I think Ryan was like, well, I might sit on it, but I was like, I mean, whatever. I feel like we got it. I mean, you can't get any more, I think of that kind of, yeah, that, that, that beautiful contrast that really like showcases like linkage more than it does like breakage. Yeah. I mean, both films are just now going to be some of my go-to examples of male companionship and love. You know, Mm -hmm. there's something about these films that is linked so heavily by, especially that early dance number in it's always fair weather when they're still in their, you know, military uniforms and they're just dancing on the streets of New York. They're a little drunk and they just love their guys. And they're feeling great, they're feeling fine, and they feel like they can fly into the clouds almost in the middle of the night in in New York. And that's what we even have in Passing Stranger at moments. Like after the the first big sex scene between these two pen pals when they finally like fuck in a in a beautiful field of flowers, like they jump with joy. They are trying to ascend to the heavens almost. They're just nude and in San Francisco against a beautiful blue sky jumping up and down and like these moments of joy have so much in common with the way they look i mean i mean obviously you know we got the wide cinemascope image and we've got the tighter 43 16 millimeter but both of these films have moments of just pure bliss because of companionship between two groups of men who love each other i mean there's also plenty of like <laughs> groups of men triplicate couplings <laughs> in passing strangers as well i mean um, I, I i think yeah for it's like uh, you know i mentioned right that you have this kind of romantic element in it's always fair weather of you know specifically right like uh, gene kelly and sid charise the the mm-hmm the very hetero, you know, kind of coupling that is so prevalent throughout most of classic Hollywood. But for for me, for my money, like, that's not the real romance of this movie. The real love story is the three men and the way that they talk about each other, the way that they sing about each other, the way that they embrace one another throughout this movie, that is, is, is to me like the grand love story of, of the movie. It's, it's always stuck with me since I saw this movie for the first time that, you know, when I think about movies about that very subject that you're talking about, you know, like, companionship friendship and and male friendship as well like this is this is an all-timer for me be, because of that you know like Sid Charisse yeah she's in there because like sure right Sid Charisse romantic aspect but like nah 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 this is about men who have fallen out of love and need to fall back in love it's like the great comedy of remarriage but it's not about a man and a wife a husband and wife it's about it's about dudes, you know, like yeah. it's about guys. And I, and I think that if we got to the, the core conflict in it's always fair weather, there's a, there's a smattering of conflicts. There's all these different things that come up and we move from scene to scene. There's, you know, something going on the whole time, but like at the core of it, 
when they finally reconnect with each other and it feels as though the, the fire from their friendship is gone and they do feel like passing strangers almost, oh, it's yeah. because they all seemingly don't like what the other person became, the man that they eventually turned into, as if it's a betrayal of who they really are and their memory of that person, how they believed that person at their core was when they all like became buddies at the time, uh, to the point where that their memories become foggy. They can't remember core incidents from their days in the military together. They've, the details become elusive and they're, they're slippery because each of them in their own ways has followed a specific path that was sort of set up for them and in certain respects betrayed the men that they were. It kind of connects to passing strangers in that sense where the reason these two passing strangers in the film kind of immediately click and fall in love is because, you know, even if it kind of feels like the Wizard of Oz, it's this dreamland where we shift to color and it's this new world. It's also because they're being true to themselves, that they're not hiding. And that's the conflict for for Robert, right? He says when he's writing to Tom, like, oh, don't put your return address on this. Like, I don't want my parents to see this. Like, this is all brand new for me. And he's just now starting to be true to himself. And I think that, like, that is ultimately what tears these people apart in both films, but what brings them together. It's when they're honest with themselves and they're not putting on this front that that's when the companionship happens. And in one case, it's singing and dancing, in another, it's sucking and fucking. But like, that's the thing. It's so beautiful. It's that, it's that truth that then leads to those moments of bliss. When they're singing the parting song at the bar, Kyle was like, look at, look at his hands. And, you know, uh, Dan Daly is like, literally massaging the boys mm -hmm. and like not holding back in a very like very tender you know moment yeah. it's just like really amazing and you really do get that that sense of camaraderie and then yeah they they all sell out and ryan i'm glad <laughs> you brought that up because we should i guess if we can introduce like a, another major layer of the film uh, the film is also like this kind of Tashlin-esque assault on television yeah. and the mm -hmm. advertising world. This sort of like also implication that like these soldiers have been like dehumanized and emasculated by this like commercial world. And that's sort of like what's happened to them, right? The one guy, uh, Doug, right? He wants to be a painter and he becomes a madman instead. And there's just like so much self-loathing yeah. there. From Chicago to I know, uh, a this, Leo Burnett yeah, guy. You he's know? totally, yeah, he fucking <laughs> is a Leo Burnett guy for sure. Uh, and then of course, yeah, Angie has, you know, the roadside hamburger shop, but it's called Le Cordon Blue because, you know. Yeah. Uh, he wanted to be a great chef. Yes, exactly. And then of course, uh, Ted, Gene Kelly, uh, was supposed to go to law school, was supposed to be a great man, a leader. And instead, uh, he's just kind of a gigolo, you know, uh, a, a dice rolling, uh, you know, 
yeah. sharp. Yeah. <laughs> a thug, you yeah. know? Uh, 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 a sort of castaway from fucking guys and dolls, basically. And that's a, a wonderful montage sequence, and there are several in this film, but when mm-hmm. they're uh, sort of transitioning over the 10 years, there's the, you know, the 10 years montage, and it's like, look at Eisenhower, look at the Pope. But then they also do the triptych uh, between the three guys, sort of like showing where they're at in life. And it's like, oh, one guy's getting married, the other guy's getting married. And then like saxophone comes on, and it's like, Gene Kelly and the ladies. And it does that reveal every time. I was cracking up. It's so funny. And it uses that rule of thirds you know throughout as this just like formal rule and again to your point andy like yeah this is not about sid charisse uh they also cut there was a a gene kelly sid charisse dance number and kelly cut it out so not important to him you know (laughs) right yeah Yeah. it's like no we have to see the three guys and it's like often the jokes have like a, a rhyme to it or this like triple element to it or the the songs as well like when they have the uh sort of like internal monologue you know when they're on their horrible date uh, at the (laughs) at the swanky steakhouse or whatever and it just like zooms in on all of them and you get them individually singing this lament of like how much this sucks yeah i fucking hate (laughs) these guys yeah that number is awesome dude yeah i shouldn't have come i shouldn't have come This thing's a mistake, an awful mistake. That guy's such a snob, and who is that hick? Can these be the guys I once thought I could never live without? Uh, Who do you think will win the World Series? Well, uh, both teams look pretty good to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, may the best team win. This thing is a frost. I'd like to get lost. Old pals are the bunk. This guy's a cheap punk. And that one's a heel. And I'm a shlemiel. Can these be the guys I once thought I could never live without? This thing's a bad dream. Why can't I just scream? Ah! Oh, why did I fly to New York from Shy to drink scotch at noon with a hick and a goon? Can these be the guys I once thought? I could never live without. This guy is a punk, a punk, a punk. This guy is a snob, a snob, a snob. This guy is a dope, a hick, a square. I shouldn't have come, I'm in despair. Our dreams are dusting down the drain. Singers a bus, then I'm insane. Oh, why did I come? Oh, why am I here? Oh, 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 oh. A hick, a square, a snob, a punk. A hick, a square, a snob, a punk. Ah, 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 
longtime pros, Michael Kidd, uh, a sort of like up and comer choreographer, a guy that like Kelly knew of is just like, this guy is a great fucking dancer. Like it's his first fucking movie. And like, he is just like, seems like this guy's been in movies for 20 years as well, because like the physicality of that sequence that you're describing is amazing because again, it's wordless. They're not actually singing. They're just looking into the camera like and biting celery. Biting ce- dude, the celery. <laughs> they're they're like yeah. They're just like eating celery in the most like miserable fucking way. I mean, yeah, at the turquoise room, which inst- I think should have been called the ruby room. Like the whole place is red. I was yeah. so confused by that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the Tashlin like uh, comparison, I think he's great because there are like very like yeah, almost like cartoonish elements at times. You know, with the film. Uh, but it's also like really grounded in some like very raw, like real human, human emotion. And I do want to go back to like the point that Ryan made just in general, like that the sort of like heart of the film is, is about this idea of love and, and oneself, you know, and recognizing oneself, uh, you know, it's, it's so important and telling that in the moment of the film, when, Gene Kelly is sort of proclaiming his love for Sid Charisse. The song actually is I Like Myself. His song about being in love with Sid Charisse is a declaration of self-love, you know? And, and you know, it's such an important thing to, to hit on that, again, like both these movies have in common and what they recognize is that, you know, to love someone, like we have to love ourselves. Like to love someone in a healthy way, we have to love ourselves. And you're right, that's why they've drifted apart. Like that whole sequence that we're describing where it's like, I can't believe these fucking guys, like we're my friends, like whatever. Like it's also like this moment where these guys are just like at their most miserable because they're looking inward and they're realizing like, man, I'm uninteresting. I have nothing to talk about. I have forgotten all these great things like you've described, Ryan. It's, it's that they all realize this sort of lie when they've gotten back together that, that, or betrayal, I think was the word you used, you know, that the last thing they said to each other was like, oh, we're going to do these amazing things in our life. We're going to be these great guys. We just beat the fucking Nazis. We can do anything. We can go anywhere. And they fucking betrayed each of them in their own ways, all of that stuff. Like, yes, they don't like these guys, but more than anything, they hate themselves. You know, they might not realize it at that particular point in the movie, but that's the journey of of discovery that they're gonna have to go on, you know? Hey, you call us a hamburger for four bucks? Angie, shh, please. Come on, Ted, you taste it. You know all about horses. I tell you this hamburger ran in a Kentucky Derby. Forget it, Angie. Listen, if I served stuff like this, I'd be run out of Schenectady on the third rail. Will you shut up? What'd you say? I said be quiet. This is very embarrassing. Angie, don't act like a yokel in a very high-class place. Didn't stop you from trying to make a quick pickup, I noticed. I picked up dames in better places than this. I doubt that. I don't think either of you crumbs could get in a place like this without me. Who's a crumb? You are. You are. No, I'm not going to go for great. I'm sorry. I mean, I got to say, I... I... Um, you know, I didn't mean to derail your intro, but like I, I was realizing when I watched this movie that like, yes, I have brought sexy movies, but I'm, I have, I've still yet to bring 
you know, hardcore sex scenes to the pod. And, and both of you did. And I, I have to say that like in Emmanuel, it kind of snuck up on us because in Emmanuel, you know, it, it starts as a soft core movie. And then suddenly, like once it's got us lulled into a sense of security, that movie like just plunged suddenly very quickly into hardcore territory in a lot of different ways, you know, not just the sex, but the violence (laughs) really kind of shocked me. But yeah, Passing Strangers, like wham, like we are, I mean, like you said, it's, it's, it's the, 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 fucking opening of the movie we are in, right we're in full hardcore territory and i wonder if that movie theater porno heaven ever showed any of the emmanuel films i, I would bet on it i yeah. mean yeah perhaps but even then emmanuel might have been soft for the kind of stuff right. that they were showing in there <laughs> like i mean yeah this is a recorded message of the program at the variety cinema on turk street san francisco's oldest art cinema Through next Tuesday, two films from Miracle Motion Pictures, Nymphettes Go to Paris with Gabrielle Gabrielle and Lena Lamont in Fuck Me, Fuck Me, My Sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I honestly was a little, you know, like I was sort of like, whoa, because I'd, I'd, you know, this is a a name that I'd, I'd come across, you know, this filmmaker, and I'd heard people you know and seen mutuals on letterbox like discuss his films buddies has been on my list for a very long time of a film that like it seems like a, a seminal piece in in like the like the emergent new queer cinema of the united states of america so i'd long been meaning to see them and i'd heard a lot of those things that you know you had described an intro of of you know well this was a a compromise that a lot of queer filmmakers had to make in america of like well we want to make this movie about you know uh you know just just normal healthy relationships but we have to insert the hardcore sex and like man this was my first experience with it so like i'd heard that but didn't fully i guess realize like like oh yeah like no that's what it's what it is 100% like hardcore sex scene so it sort of took me back but very quickly like i was then also blown away by by the 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 creativity and the almost at times like experimental quality of how the sex scenes were filmed you know like look i'm a I'm a grown ass man. I've seen plenty of sucking and fucking throughout my life. I've seen plenty of porno of all walks and shapes and sizes, you know, but like, I mean, it sounds silly to put it in these terms, but like, this is some of the most artful porn I have ever seen in my entire life. Like I get it now, you know, because at a certain point, like at first I'm sort of watching it, you know, and I was watching it in the morning. So it was like, I'm having my coffee. (laughs) A a hell of a way to start the day, you know, I'll put it that way. But, but like after a while, like I really just started to see more than anything, shapes and movements and geometry and, and uh, an almost like abstract, like a very sort of poetic abstraction of like anatomy of physiology and and i i hate to be the guy that you know takes all the 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 fun out of porn by talking about it in these ways but like i mean there's some really really like incredible incredible stuff going on in in this in this movie, I was thinking about even like in one of the the sex scenes that you described. That's that's almost like a fantasy. 
we of course get the like kind of hardcore orgy sequence, but like as it builds, we then kind of like shift then to I think more overtly dreamlike territory where suddenly it's just like naked male figures sort of jumping up and down and and bubbles just emerging yeah. in the midst of all this bubbles just sort of like floating through this this apartment and and interwoven between all these bodies and it was like outright almost like experimental filmmaking for me at this point i think it's crucial to like the construction of the film that the there's like a different approach you know, to the sex scenes, which is also what I appreciated. And especially in the first half, in the black and white half, they're like sort of mediated, right? So it's like when we see the orgy, it's uh, Robert in the like, the you know, the nudie in the booth, you know, in the peep show. And it's linked and cutting back and forth to the light flickering on his face and yeah. his, you know, uh, emerging, his becoming, uh, you know, more comfortable with this kind of stuff. And then it's, yeah, as you're describing, that's like a fantasy he has. So it's all then building up to than the real, you know, sex scene in color, right? Which it feels different and is shot differently than uh, a lot of these scenes. And I appreciate it, like, uh, especially in the fantasy scene when he's imagining all the all the homies in, in the house. Uh, it's got this, like, amazing expressionist quality yeah. where it's like, you know, the, the, the boners, like, backlit. You know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> again, like it's it's cued into like his emotional like growth and awakening and his his fantasies and his loneliness. And like, again, I was blown away by just, yeah, how well it's not just, oh, yeah, this is a shot of, of people fucking. But like there's so much more thought put into the cuts and the angles. Yeah. Each one is really unique and grounded in some sort of like subjectivity yes. to it. And that's so much into the design of how each one stands out because none of these sex scenes blur together. They all have their own distinct qualities. Some of them are quite long, but they. Oh yeah. 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 Oh, dude. Even even uh, uh, Tom's scene is that like to me that's like Robert imagining it from the letter, you know? Because it's like in black and white still. Uh, it's like, did that even happen, or is this all rooted in Robert's subjectivity? I think you could even argue that it is in the first that's half. That's true. Perhaps you know. Yeah, maybe that's, that's a stretch, but. I mean, that's like I the two I think of the most is like the one you brought up when he's looking at the peep show and we have the light flickering on his face and the perspective keeps shifting because we see the films being projected from quite a distance and then we get it filling the full frame and we're seeing it through his eyes. And then later the scene when Tom and Robert have sex outside in the lovely green grass and the flowers, so much of the cutting is then cutting to the silhouettes of the trees. And I kept thinking that their bodies in the 69 position and the way they were entangled with each other felt so much like I was looking at the limbs of these yeah. trees. Like there was so much connection to the beauty of the natural world with this natural coupling that's happening in a moment of like pure romance and truth between these two men. And yeah, I agree with you, Andy. Like it's blocked and staged in a really effective way. Like that scene... The way they use the surroundings, it's just so 
crafty with no budget just to like film two dudes fucking outside and yet the the montage makes it all feel like this like one cohesive thing and the light coming through the trees has like a kaleidoscopic sort of effect and like the light play on them rolling around is crazy enough i mean like at a certain point i was like terrence malick shit you know like yeah it is walt whitman you know it's like go back to that right well Uh, and again to 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 link the the experience of these two films you know i was reflecting on also you know, prior to like Gene Kelly, so many like musicals and dance numbers and films, they really were these kinds of like crude pornographic, like record scratch moments where it was suddenly like, okay, here's the number. And, you know, even if it's cool, you know, it is this very like obviously kind of like stagey moment. And if you even think about things like Busby Berkeley, which like rocks, it's just like all of a sudden we're in an any space, whatever. We're just like, here is this big sound stage where now this this big choreographed dance number is going to take. Or it's just like, hey, let's clear out the space and let let just like, you know, Fred and, and Ginger kind of like do their thing. But like Kelly, in his uh, in his mission to sort of like, you know, and, and in his own words, sort of like introduce a more kind of like athletic masculinity to things like ballet and dance. You know, I think one of his big innovations, like him and uh, his work with Stanley Donnan and, and Donnan himself, was to sort of like ground the the dancing like within the world itself to make the dance numbers like organic in the space in which they're mm-hmm. taking place you know and to to sort of like interact with the environment to become one with the environment of the dance and and again like that that opening number which you already described i mean it's like fucking proto stomp shit They're just like in the streets of New York, like dancing with a cab. They're they're terrorizing that poor cab driver. Yeah, terrorizing (laughs) the poor cab driver. But it's it's wild shit, you know. And and it's graceful and it's it's amazing. But there's suddenly bodies intertwined with a fucking New York taxi cab, and and now they've got the trash can lids, and they're they're stomping around with the trash can lids. You know, it's it's the same thing in in something like. uh, 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 you know, singing in the rain, where he is—he's using the rain, he's using the elements to create music with his body of just interacting with puddles and splashes. You know, so many of the dance numbers in this—they—they they, as much as they are like, oh yes, here's a Hollywood musical dance number, like. There's an extra element in this film that I've appreciated, especially compared to some of the others, where the. the it's almost as if they're like trying to add a further element within this of being like, yeah, these are just guys like literally dancing in, in the streets, you know? And as much as this is like at times studio backlots, like the, the world doesn't just like come to a screeching halt when these people start to dance. They're, they're, they're dancing with the world, not sort of like against it or in spite of the world, you know? They're, they're working with it. I mean, even later in the film when we get one of his most, you know, famous moments of, of solo 
dance where, where Kelly's with the, he's, he's on the roller skates. Something that's fascinating about that, if you actually look back at the sequence, everyone in the streets is like, looking at him and stopping and paying attention to what he's doing. It isn't, again, this like total break from reality of just like, and then, you know, people say that about musicals, right? Well, how's everybody just going about their business when this kind of shit's going on? Like, people aren't going about their business. People are like, look at this guy fucking skating all yeah. over the place here. What the hell's going on They mob on him at the end because it's like the coolest shit they've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. people <laughs> are like, check this shit out. This guy's going nuts out here, you know? Like, it isn't removed from... The, the the hustle and bustle of the city. It's very much like a part of that that hustle and bustle. See, now I'm imagining uh, like a, a group of friends hiking on the, the cliffs and coast of San Francisco, stumbling upon our guys in their musical interlude and just being like, oh, how nice. I mean, <laughs> the, that would happen. It does happen. I mean, like very much so, you know? Well, I think it's funny how... Both of these films have uh, their creators present in them. I mean, quite obvious with with Gene Kelly, but I do love that Passing Strangers has the presence of Arthur J. Bresson Jr. Uh, in the film itself. He's the projectionist that that runs the the Porno Heaven Theater, and I like that he gets a little bit of his own like state of the industry critique in there yes. as he's he's threading the film and like calling his buddy well he's call, he's calling tom and asking how his personal ad is going uh but he's talking about the state of you know the, the stuff that's coming through his theater at porno heaven and marsh rattled off some of the titles already but he has just a great line where you know tom asks oh how's the screening going tonight and he's like ah you know this how's porno heaven it's about the same tom two new flicks up from la washed out color shitty prints lousy soundtracks the house is about half full. You figure it. And I like that because it's like you got to respect your craft that even if you are in in porno heaven projecting some 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 nasty little stuff, you know, you, you got to have some standards, right? Oh, yeah, because he's what does he say? The plot formula, you know, boy meets girl, boy fucks girl, girl does everyone in town. You know. Yeah. <laughs> God, yeah, I fucking love that. And he, it's like a film with such little dialogue, but all of it is so good. It's all so memorable. I also just think, too, just thinking about that beginning in the projection booth, in the porn theater, I was really struck by the fact that the first image of this film is a man and a woman fucking. Yeah. And shot from like an interesting angle, it like <laughs> is that here is we that, go? Uh, yeah. yeah, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a close up of balls, yeah, dude. Yeah. It's, oh it's, no, I don't know. I don't mean <laughs> the the fucking. I mean the fact that the camera's placement in the room. Oh yeah. Then it's at the is, back of the theater, and then it's in the projection booth. <laughs> it's in the back of the theater, and it makes it look kind of underlit and scuzzy. It's flickering. It's we aren't being presented with the fucking as its own singular image it's being filmed in the room right, right? and it doesn't look as like clean i was going to say it's like it's like the it's it's really the grossest shot of the sex in the right. entire movie it is right. like and it, and it's and it's loaded with that electronic score that you would expect in a porn the like you know like right when it starts and i was like oh shit but i just yeah i don't know i i, I don't really have like a full reflection on it but i thought it was interesting that the the very first image of sex we have in the film is heterosexual sex yeah and again i i think it's it's like the it's the one that is like most devoid of 
context and emotion. And I think that and speaks, hugs and kisses. yeah, and hugs and kisses. And I think that speaks to what you were, you were laying out. I think that's exactly why we open on this, this just sort of like grotesque in your face moment of this, like, yes, like explicitly like pornographic money shot, essentially yeah, without yeah. any romance without any uh prelude without any emotion in it it is just like purely mechanical at that point when we're introduced to it so i think yeah that's that's a very telling reason as to why then it goes from that to this guy in the porno theater just being like man you know there's no heart in any of this shit anyway you know like yeah you know it is like a thesis statement for the film itself yeah yeah. And again, like, you know, you alluded to this marsh, but like, yeah, secretly or not so secretly, like within it's always fair weather is this sort of lamentation about the the shift away from like big pictures in Hollywood to the small screen and television, you know, like a big element of the the sort of like, I think, overt satire of the movie is just like them ripping on this fucking you know, Midnight with Madeline or whatever, this this big TV show that that's being put on, you know, in this cinemascope film, in this like ultra fucking like widescreen big picture. But, you know, it's also like part of the reason why I think Donnan talked about just kind of like the, the tense atmosphere on the set. Uh, Kelly made this film following like a string of... of I, I wouldn't necessarily even call them failures, but like the luster was 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 certainly fading for like the big MGM musicals. Like only like two years prior to this, he'd had this sort of like disastrous stint where he went to France as like part of some strange tax shelter deal, which I still don't fully understand. But like Kelly, I think at this point was like, man, we need a hit. We need to get back to like the the, the good, good shit. And this was originally supposed to be just like a straight up sequel to On the Town of being like, hey, this was the boys when they were going off to war and how happy they were. And let's check in with them now in the in the sort of post-war world. They couldn't quite get that together because I think part of it was like Sinatra was was a dick by this point or something. I toxic heard. asset. Yeah, toxic asset. But then it just kind of was like, okay, let's 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 make something else out of it. And Gene Kelly basically like begged, from what I understand. Uh, Don in to like come back to team up again to help him like recapture the magic of of uh, uh, singing in the rain and like we need to do this we need to like show people that like no we still got it you know and like yeah TV is certainly taking away from our box office receipts but let's like let's yeah let's lampoon that shit but also give them the good good shit that MGM musicals have been providing for so long but like it was a disaster. And even in its release, it was like a fucking commercial failure for them, in part because of the realities of TV. I read that this thing, like they just like dumped it into some drive-in movies on a double bill with Bad Day at Black Rock. Mm. What the fuck are you doing that's putting sick, this movie? That's a sick double feature. I mean, that's a gauntlet-ass <laughs> double feature, but like, holy crap, you know? Could you imagine being in the drive-in and being like watching Bad Day at Black Rock and then watching this? Or It's because they don't have to like swap the lenses, you know? <laughs> Because it's like, those are probably the two big cinemascope. Were those the same year? 
Yeah, I, yeah, they had to. Yeah, be, you yeah. know. Yeah, they there had you go. To That's probably 55. it. They're like, yeah. oh, we don't want to swap out the lenses. It's too complicated. Yeah, <laughs> it's you know, look, uh, everyone, everyone loses their luster after a while. Even the freed unit. You know, I'd read that part of it too was uh, the shift in musicals. The shift in musicals towards like the big stage productions, like Oklahoma like West Side Story, like these sort of like big spectaculars sort of just made the the freed films be like, weren't you guys doing this in the 40s? Like <laughs> yeah. two, you know? And it's like, well, of course. Uh, and yeah, it's just crazy to me that this film at the time was, was a loss and was like largely perceived, uh, you know, negatively. Because for us in the 21st century especially, it's like, oh yeah, this is like the most melancholic MGM yeah. musical ever made like that's amazing like of course like who wouldn't love that with our modern sensibilities but you went to MGM back then for the corn this movie doesn't really have it you know like in that way this is like a sad movie yeah. and at times a cynical movie and yeah the TV show that they're parodying is like this exploitative hidden camera show you know so like there's that element of it as well uh, as well as like yeah the cleanse right ladies coming out dressed as like products or whatever <laughs> like a, yeah. that would be so fascinating to just you know, you think about all the different places you could visit if you had the opportunity to travel back in time. Just one night seeing one of those fucking shows, you know, oh, like yeah. it's just so weird because I was so confused at first. Like I knew about these sorts of things. Um, I like an initially missed that it was television. I just like missed a detail and I like kind of briefly stopped the film. I was like, Molly, like what is going on? And she was like, it's kind of like Ellen. <laughs> you know? But it's like, live. Right. Yeah. But then, like, yeah, then, like, it started to become more clear because it had this, like, music song and dance thing to it. Uh, and, yeah, just the people coming out wearing the boxes of the Cleanse Right <laughs> cleaning products. Um, yeah, to just to imagine, like, that being your night on the town, mm -hmm. you know, going out to the big ballroom to watch something like that with your dinner. So strange. I used to show when I taught my media literacy, media, media literacy class, like, years ago, I would uh, show them clips from like uh the the like milton burl texaco hour or whatever and and i would oh and and the show would open with this big musical number of these like these like gas gas station attendants i wipe the pipe i pump the gas i rub the hub i scrub the glass i touch the clutch i mop the top i poke the choke i sell the pop i clear the gear i block the knock i jack the back i set the clock so join the ranks of those who know and fill your tanks with texaco singing about the different brands of gasoline you can buy like you know fuel up with fly right fuel up with fly right like and i was like there's different <laughs> fucking like varieties of gasoline that they're singing about here to everybody and it was like a five minute number just about gasoline of all fucking things you know but yeah it was like a a full-on musical number i mean yeah it's it's incredibly surreal for us now to like go back and look at those things but like yeah that's 100 what they're fucking ripping on it's not that it was like 
it's outrageous what they did. Like, nah, their shit was probably actually tame compared to oh, like, yeah. the, the Colgate hour and some yeah. insane the Alcoa. Like, yeah, yeah. Just these totally like, I mean, just this mind bending experiences of smashing products into, again, the idea of just entertainment. But it's, it's at the end of the day, right? Yeah, it's selling soap in this case. Well, linking uh, classic Hollywood to passing strangers, as you mentioned, we can we can do in a few ways. And and I did learn, as I'm sure you did as well, Ryan, that Bresson was a uh, Frank Capra number one fan, and even like wrote a dissertation on Capra at some point uh, in his life. So seriously, a lover of the classic cinema, and there is. An incredible scene in Passing Strangers when Robert is at home and he's watching some sort of classic movies channel uh, on his television. And specifically, he's watching KPOX San Francisco in cooperation with the Worthington Foundation presents silent screen classics, films from Hollywood's golden era. Tonight... D.W. Griffith's Broken Blossoms, starring Lillian Gish and Richard Bartholmus. Released in 1919, Broken Blossoms marked Griffith's return to the simple melodrama after the commercial failure of his masterwork, Intolerance. Broken Blossoms is a story of the doomed relationship between an oriental man and a white girl. Filmed in 19 days. And then he jerks off to it. <laughs> and that is, to me, I was losing my fucking mind. I'm like, is this is this dude about to jerk off to D.W. Griffith? And the answer is yes. Uh, and that <laughs> happens. And it's an extended sequence of him just jerking off. And it's, you know, great montage as usual. And the montage, you know, it got me thinking, of course, all the way back to some of our uh, earlier pornographic uh, adventures with Doris Wishman. This film reminded me in the same way, just the the low-budget montage and just really effective use of that because you can't afford anything else. And then it's like, here's the, the great rupture, of course, between our films is, yeah, It's Always Fair Weather is the, the CinemaScope long take. And look at what these guys can do when there's no cuts. And that's what money gets you, you know? Choreography, time, extras, Gene Kelly skating around a corner and 30 extras interacting versus, like, yeah, the piecemeal poetry montage of the the low budget film. Dude, you know? when, when much earlier in in our in our podcast history, we watched another great like big you know fifties studio largesse uh, uh, extravaganza. We watched Some Came yes. Running, uh, directed by another like veteran of like the big like musical era, and and I remember specifically us like talking about this moment. And you, you, Marsh pointed out, like, you want to talk about, like, the fucking resources that these people had to just, like, throw away on these movies. And you were, you were highlighting the carnival sequence and be like, look at just that fucking scene. Look at that sequence. Look at all this stuff here just for this fucking, to sell the idea that they're at a carnival. And, like, I had another one of those moments in this film uh, that seems even, like, more, like wasteful and insane which is like at a certain point 
when he's just trying to like run away from these guys, he's like, oh, I'll dip into this roller rink really quick. And then they go inside this roller rink and there's like 150 extras in this roller rink stage that looks like a working like roller skating rink. and people are roller skating around it's tons of people and like he goes to the counter swaps clothes with the guy and then it's just like doing laps with i'm honestly like probably half of fucking central casting which is like honestly maybe like a 30 second sequence and then he just like dip dips back out and i was like Look at all that. There was nothing pivotal that happened in there other than him temporarily giving these guys the slip. I mean, whoa. I mean, that's why this shit couldn't last very much longer. Yeah. You know? Like, <laughs> look at that. I mean, holy right, crap. Right. Man, yeah, I keep thinking about, of course, the I mean, I love the 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 song and dance that takes place entirely in their heads where they're singing the song at the at lunch in the turquoise room like that's obviously incredible but it's really that triptych of the yes. three of them in the long shot dancing in three different places and there's camera movements and it's all perfectly in sync that's obviously just the most impressive shit ever but i was a little sore at the fact it was like i don't you know minnelli probably wouldn't have done it this way i like couldn't get over the fact that all three of those rooms were just like this ugly beige <laughs> that i felt like that could have been such a cool scene for just color and like color synchronicity with it um because everything they're doing is so amazing and the fact that the camera's even moving at all is like mind-blowing and i felt like it's a film that is full of really beautiful set design and it's like that was the most muted it had ever been like throughout the entire film well to be fair though i think for them in that moment that is sure. their their lowest point that's when that's exactly them, what molly said to me yeah that's when, <laughs> when each I of them is yeah. feeling like most drab like when i rolled mm -hmm. in marsh was you know like he, he was checking that that specific number out again yeah and like we were both just like talking about how like yeah. Man, that is, that's our kind of dance number. It's just these guys shuffling. like shuffling, kicking the ground, bummed out, hands in their fucking pockets, smoking cigarettes while they're, they're dancing. And they're just singing about like, <clears throat> how like having dreams is like such a joke. Like, why did they ever have dreams? You know, like, why did I ever believe that life could be something fun and wonderful, exciting? Why did I buy into any of this? Like, I'm right. a sucker forever have had it having like optimism in my life. So, so I think, you know, to me, it, it makes sense that they're just in these kind of like bare empty spaces in those moments, you know? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, again, when I said to Molly, I'm like, oh, it's kind of a missed opportunity, these beige rooms. She said, Ryan, they're feeling beige. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, you're right, you're right. They're, yeah. they're beiged so, out. Yeah. He was thinking about uh, creating Jolio the Gelatin Man <laughs> and uh, just self-loathing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess thinking about color too, like I, it's really amazing that shift from black and white to color in Passing Strangers. It just gives everything such a totally different quality. I mean, because all the sex in the front half of Passing Strangers is generally anonymous. I mean, there is the... I mean, I guess when Tom is out on the street and he's, like, cruising. Great you sequence, know, and, by the way. Yeah, The cruising amazing. sequence is so good. Shout out yeah. to when San Francisco existed, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no kidding, yeah. But, like, that, that shift is so 
fascinating. I saw in one of the write-ups you had, it just sent me an advanced marsh how someone equated it to that like it's a we're not in Kansas anymore moment. You know, like we've left behind uh, this version of our lives to find to end up somewhere more fantastical and real um, in that sense of, of color, bringing a sort of reality, but also a dreamlike reality to it because of how blissful it all feels. And there's no direct sound. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because there's no direct sound. So yeah, it's I think, all a dream. <laughs> yeah, I think all the voice actors are like not correct. those guys. Correct. It's like yeah. different voices playing than the, the actors in the film itself. Yeah, it was a wild, like, credit sequence to yeah. just be Learned kind of... a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one was who I thought they were. <laughs> from, from anyone. Even the director himself, someone else, like, dubbed his voice. It yeah. wasn't his voice, even though he was, like, physically acting. I mean, it was wild. Yeah. <laughs> just thinking about some of the other moments in, in the front half, I'm just like, all the black and white images are, like, flooding through my my mind now. It's like, yeah, the cruising scene is unbelievable. And then I also love just that experience of witnessing these kinds of sexual awakenings before the internet, you know, and the different spaces and, like, mm-hmm. what was available. And, of course, like, obviously the personal ads, but then when they're at the bookstore, when Robert, like, before he goes to the peep show, is, like, browsing the the stacks and how there's just the little turnstiles with all the mass market paperbacks that'll have, like, a descriptor of incest <laughs> above it, you know? And he's just, like, admiring the covers. And it's like, wow, what, like, a magical space. And not to be uh, not to be outdone, but he works in, like, a mirror motif throughout the film, too, as part of that sort of, like, self-reflection and growth. Yeah. Like, there's, like, a Fassbender amount of, like, looking into mirrors in this, in this movie at times, especially Robert, because, again, it's like about his transformation mostly yeah. you know yeah about seeing yourself about about like seeing this this person that uh could be perhaps even like a more complete version of yourself i mean it's important that too like at first as you described like when he's first drifting into this discovery and this becoming like we are at first like just seeing him literally like looking through this like peephole like it's just like a a a, a peak right a peek into into this this ultimate expression of of self truth you know that again in the the shift in the second half it's like the openness then when we get this like documentary sequence where they're just at like the pride parade and and as you also were describing earlier like jumping for joy bodies open reaching towards the sky and then and then so many people and so much joy so much happiness and and quite literally like taking to the streets with it you know like uh being completely open and and able to express, you know, affection uh, to whomever you want, uh, and without any concerns of of reprisal or having to, to to hide or 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 yeah, like lurk in some bookstore. Like, nah, we're not just in like the the seedy part of town. Now we're on Main Street, you know, and and I think that's like such. To me, like, why I, I, I would say, like, yeah, this is, like, a very important document of a very, very important time for so many people in in our culture, in America. I believe 
Harvey Milk was elected uh, in 1974, the year that this came out. And, oh, I, wow. and I learned as well that Harvey Milk knew Bresson mm-hmm. and promoted, uh, he did a documentary a few years later, this like big pride documentary called Gay USA. And Harvey Milk like, you know, helped promote it in his camera shop, mm-hmm. you know, while he was a politician. So it is crazy. I didn't expect that it's like, we get into like the, the end of this film and it's like, and now here's a documentary about like, one of the first prides in San Francisco, which like started in 1972. So it could only have been the first or second one. And oh, it's wow. like, I didn't even realize. That. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Like, and now here's the documentary. Here's the medium cool moment, but it's just like, look at a million people and they're all happy and like, yeah, expressing themselves and different kinds of people and different kinds of people in the queer community. It is all of a sudden this like kaleidoscope of people like, yeah, it's fucking crazy. Yeah. It's amazing. Didn't expect that. Yeah. I mean, it's only a few years after Stonewall. I mean, I mean, this is like, this is very, very new and this is, this is, in itself, like a becoming, uh, a becoming for an entire group of people in our country, and and it's 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 again back to the thesis of like why so many people now are going back and saying no no like we need to we need to celebrate these films we need to look beyond yeah the 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 first like couple shots or whatever of these movies which were like okay let's get the sucking and the fucking out of the way and and again that's. Being reductive because here it's it's clearly made by somebody who who isn't just trying to make a cheap buck, but to almost in a certain respect like Trojan horse in this pornographic film, like an actual statement about life, about humanity, about you know uh, the, the heart more than it is just like the sex organs. I mean, certainly the sex organs are a part of it. And that's a big part of pride is like the sex positivity aspect of, you know, the queer community and, and being able to, to, to be open and in the streets with that, with your, you know, hugs and kisses, not just the, the sucking and fucking. Right. Yeah. I feel like it kind of brings me to two of the most beautiful moments, I think in both films that I, I I thought were like linked in certain respects and like finding that happiness. And it's like getting out of the quicksand of the lies that we, we tell ourselves and like the kind of lives we lead and how it makes so many aspects of our daily life really difficult when we are lying to ourselves. And there's a really lovely moment in passing strangers in the front half when they are writing to each other. And Robert mentions that, you know, he's written a few drafts of these letters that he's like, you know, but this one I'm going to send. I'm going to send you this one. It's the sixth one, no matter how it turns out. But then yet he still concedes like, but writing to you is different. I can get some of it out on paper, at least. And it's because there's this contentment in that piece when we're doing something we believe in that aligns with what we believe about ourselves. Like the writing comes naturally. It's not this like uphill battle that uh, he feels in other situations in his life where he feels like he's trying to present a version of himself. And I think about how that links to the end of, of It's Always Fair Weather when Doug 
after he has his becoming when he's no longer a madman and uh decides that like this this ad life is bullshit he wants to get back to what he actually believes in you know throughout the film there's this undercurrent that he's you know him and his wife are on the outs like a, a divorce is impending he's had some torturous phone calls and at the end of the film when he calls her god it like almost brings a tear to my eye how beautiful that moment is even though again the real joy is like the the guys getting back together but i love that aside in the phone booth when he calls his wife well well what happened to the rover boys we've been on television god damn set him up sure gotta hand it to you guys 10 years and the same old pals nothing changed <laughs> tim we love you, you got a <laughs> hello dorothy it's me doug yeah i just wanted to what oh you saw the program oh you do yeah, well, so do I. Listen, darling, I don't know how you stood me up to now. I'm, uh, yes, I am. But now I've got a chance to show you. Listen, darling, I know we can make it. And it's that, that moment where he has like a, and he knows it's going to work. He's like, I'm confident. Like, I have found myself again. Like, I'm back. And I, I have like, he's one step removed from the situation he was in. And it's as if he can suddenly see everything with such clarity that like, oh, I can't believe you were putting up with me. Like, I see what I was now for like the past few years. I was lost. I think I found myself again and I love you so much. Yeah. <laughs> that I, you know, I think this is all going to work. Well, just wait until wait until she hears about what he did at the party when he uh, <laughs> when he fucking when he goes Jerry Lewis wise. Yeah. When he yeah. went <laughs> off situation wise. Yeah. But uh, I love even like the prelude <laughs> to that. You know what I mean? Like. <clears throat> the to me like yes i mean gene kelly fucking rocks and this has a couple of like his his banger moments but like to me the real like heart of this kind of transformation you're talking about or the guy to me that sells it the most is dan daly and his character's mm -hmm. journey you know like and i love even prior to like him just yeah getting completely trashed at the party and like dipping out to shave off his stupid mustache <laughs> at a certain point like oh, jerry his, mode his like break like you're talking about like his like, psychotic break is when he's in that like stupid fucking like business meeting or whatever with all these guys just like babbling just business babble now situation wise and saturation wise i think this fiscal year is going to top them all what do you think Halliton? what wise i said situation wise oh excuse me i thought you said saturation wise well as a matter of fact i did i said situation wise and saturation wise oh definitely mr fielding i've got to get home i want to see dorothy i'm just beginning to see nonsense you can't leave now you've got to stay and see that program tonight and Celia's expecting you for dinner now, Trasker, where were we? Well, sounds resistance-wise and competition-wise, we have nosed out every other brand from coast to coast. Mm. Yeah, that's consumer-wise and housewife-wise. But soft spot-wise and danger-wise, we've got to keep our eyes on November, December, January, and February. I think the fiscal year is going to top them all. And sales resistance-wise and competition-wise, we've nosed out every other brand from coast to coast. <laughs> just saying all this stuff, and then we just see him sitting in a chair, and you just hear the babble on the, like, the soundtrack just building, and it just sounds like a bunch of like fucking like geese just like bleeding in the background and then he just like it, it's like he snaps and and that's exactly what what happens right it's like this 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 dude inside him is just like just comes like screaming back out and he leaps up and starts singing their like great marching song again and everyone's like what happened to this guy 
situation-wise, saturation-wise, competition-wise, sales-resistance-wise, television-wise, and meathead-wise, and fatso-wise, and wise and wise, situation-wise, saturation-wise, and saturation-wise, and situation-wise, drink-wise, pill-wise, audio-wise, and video-wise, and video-wise, and audio-wise, and audio-video-wise, and video-audio-wise, I dream of genie with the light brown hair. But you're right, you know, again, it's like, to me, this movie is just, it, it, it hits me so hard. I... The first time I saw it, I choked up, I teared up, and and again, the second time revisiting it, like, I teared up, like, twice. I got, like, lumps in my throat because I was just, like, thinking about that, like, that message, you know? And, and why I think some people call it, like, oh, it's a cynical thing because it's about, like, how friendship breaks up and, and yeah, you know, like, the ending is, is somewhat downbeat, but I, I don't consider it downbeat, you know? I mean, the ending is so fucking pitch perfect to me it's so beautiful like these guys do realize like yeah we've grown apart we have our separate lives i live in schenectady you you know are in the fight game in new york i got five kids he lives in chicago it's like they're not just gonna go back to being like attached at the hip to each other like they also come to this like very graceful recognition that like we're moving on like our friendship who we were like that that we will always hold on to but like yeah like we're parting and and the reprise at the ending is once again them all saying goodbye to each other but going back to their separate lives like revivified like this is just like Mm -hmm. one awesome day where these guys came back and like were brought back to life by each other but like ultimately part ways and this time the implication is like for good like this is the last time these guys are going to be together when they wave goodbye to each other on the on the same street that they waved goodbye to one another 10 years before and it's just such a profound approach to like friendship and maturity and like you know when you love something sometimes you have to really like just kind of like let it go like appreciate it for what it was And like, that's what they come to once again, appreciate like who they were, what this thing meant then. And, and that's, what's going to give them the, the, the strength to just like go live truthfully once again, but again, like apart from one another. It's almost like we're all just passing strangers at the end of the day. (laughs) And at the end of passing strangers, I love the utility of the porno film as Robert and Tom are like walking by the bay and it's beautiful. The film then just does a quick recap of a lot of the sex they had earlier. (laughs) Uh, And then it cuts back to them fucking 360 degree handheld uh, dolly as they hugs they embrace you know like and then there's the kite cam which we didn't mention there's oh, a couple yeah. couple like aerial shots yeah uh, that they got in this film at first when they're flying the kite and then at the end when it pulls back uh, yeah. very interesting stuff very inventive dude i was like those were like i mean tripping me up in a major way i was marveling at both of them because the first one i was like 
whoa, that's a fucking kite. Like, it's it's clear. You can kind of, like, see the string or whatever, I think, you know? Like, but the second one, I really was like, how did they do this again? Like, it's amazing. You know, this is, this is... 40 years before drone technology will come readily available right. for filmmakers to cheat helicopter shots, you know, crane shots, freed unit kind of shit, right? I mean, unbelievable. I mean, I keep thinking about, too, you just mentioning, Andy, like, could you imagine how life-giving that single day was for the guys And It's Always Fair Weather? Like, they all come out, like, totally renewed. I- If anything, Robert's journey (laughs) on that, like, huge day in Passing Strangers kind of reminds me of MVP, too, Um, in the sense where, like, when we saw that movie and uh, (laughs) that film's series of climaxes, uh, no pun intended, uh, when when Andy, you had said about MVP, too, that, like, how do you... How do you even go on from that? Like the amount of like joy and celebration and like all of these successes and these wins. It's just like you'll never have a day that will match that day. Like nothing will ever measure up against this. And I was thinking about then, especially with the context of this being maybe the like second or third pride parade in history. Imagine Robert's day and how much like how life giving that was. How do you ever beat that day? He loses his virginity with a passing stranger. They hit it off so perfectly it's like the most idyllic situation you can imagine then they have like they go on a lovely bike ride they go on a merry-go-round oh, they, i love they have some the good bike food. riding yeah, dude yeah, yeah, yeah dude. it's just like oh it's just it doesn't miss a beat it's so perfect and then he experiences the most like the amount of encouragement he received in that yeah. day oh yeah it's like that changed that guy's life yeah. like it's the best day you could ever have he's blissed out at the parade dude when they would like cut <laughs> yeah. to them like just the the big beaming <laughs> smile on his face yeah. like he's it's awesome he's come a long way from uh being like the lonely boy in like the noir uh first half when it's like <laughs> jerking shot, off yeah, broken shot, shots outside of his window he's like again with venetian blind lighting that he's sort of playing with <laughs> in his bedroom this like prison he's in and then yeah at the end i mean god damn i mean but that's why these are this is such a a, a great double feature because uh to to answer your question ryan like yeah both of these movies like to me represent that that the the delusion becoming right uh the idea behind it isn't that it's an act of finality the idea behind it is that it's a constant state that as 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 big as you are today the realization should ultimately be like you have so much more to to see and experience you have so many other places to grow and to continue to grow. And that's like the message to me that both of these films end with, that it's like, this is just the start of, of journeys for, for Robert and, and for, uh, you know, the, the, the Rover boys from it's always fair weather, you know, that like, as much as this is like the sense of like, wow, this is the best fucking day ever. It's like, no, both of these movies are leaving you with the idea that it's like, folks, this is it. It can be like this. And it could be like this every single day if you open your heart, if you open your mind, if you embrace the people around you with with love, with empathy, with with care and consideration. You know, like he's not reached his final form. This is the beginning for Robert. <laughs> and it's the beginning once again for 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 Doug and Angie and Ted. Like 
you know, they're going to go back to their lives. And it's like, man, you know, Angie's like, I'm going to, you know, cut out with that corny title of my place. You know, I'm going to be like me once again. I'm going to call it Angie and his wife's name. I forget what his wife's name is, you know, but like, we're just going to call it that, you know? And like, you get the sense, like you said with Doug, that he's just like, I'm sorry. Like I fucking, I was miserable, but like from now on, we're going to like, basically tomorrow is day one of our marriage, you know, and, and day one of, of the rest of my life. And the same thing for Ted. It's like, that's what a becoming is all about. It's about the realization that you are always starting something. You're never finishing something. You're always becoming something greater than who you were yesterday. And that process is nothing but hugs and kisses, because that's what hugs and kisses are for. Yeah, fuck Shakespeare, you know? He yeah, was wrong. fuck Shakespeare. He was wrong. <laughs> Most friendship, not fading, mm-hmm. even if it's fading. I was like trying to think. I'm like, do I ask Marsh what uh, hugs and kisses films he likes, or do I ask him his favorite musical and his favorite porno? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, odd obsession classic, the opening of Misty Beethoven, but that's you know, uh, everyone's everyone knows that one, you know. Um, yeah, uh, this you know you can go so many different ways with it. Uh, I've got I've got some I'd like to mention. I was thinking I should say something sort of classic Hollywood in the spirit of Andy's film, and I think uh, when I think about hugs and kisses in classic Hollywood, I usually think about Frank Borzaghi, the most romantic director who ever lived, full of. Uh, you know, very classic embraces in the uh, Hollywood melodramatic tradition and smooches. Uh, And I would say, uh, folks, if you haven't seen History is Made at Night, uh, see that one, because it's like this epic sweeping romance uh, (laughs) and, and a cruise ship, and it ultimately, like, climaxes with basically the Titanic. But before that, (laughs) there is uh, an incredible amount of uh, passion, let's say, and some some great embraces. Uh, You know, it's a a classic. And uh, I was thinking, you know, Andy, I have a very distinct memory of us uh, seeing Simon Lang's Stray Dogs at the (laughs) Chicago International Film Festival. And I just wanted to shout out Lee Kang Shang, who makes out with the cabbage uh, in that film for like probably 10 minutes and uh that's just one of the greatest like cinematic moments of my life and sitting there with you specifically you know i I, that's a cherished memory (laughs) Uh, of hugs and kisses you know the loneliest hugs and kisses as lee kang shang can only deliver just i I mean this is that when you just (laughs) threw that movie out i was honestly racking my brain to be like Hugs and kisses and stray dog. I remember the guy like holding the holding yeah, the being sign, being a human billboard, being a human billboard, crying for fifteen. <laughs> but the cabbage, I forgot about the cabbage. Yeah. You, you know, you you got me fucked up on that. That's, Never forget. I yeah. I all right. I'm with it. I I have a vivid memory. One of my great hugs and kisses memories, just a different one, is is also with you and several of our other like uh, guy friends, all piled in your old apartment in Avondale. Uh, we all decided together one like winter night to watch uh in the realm of the senses yeah. 
together. Yeah. And I just remember being there with like, honestly, there was like six of us there. I feel like <laughs> hip to hip on the couch, yeah. just all sitting down watching like, you know, some old guy get like, you know, snowballs thrown at his fucking dick or something. I know that that's like Ted's favorite moment of that movie or whatever, but certainly like hugs and kisses to death uh, yeah. is, is the best way to describe that that experience but that's very true yeah. yeah i think about the guys the guys the fellas more than i think about the movie i think about the experience of being with the guys for that one yes indeed wow we did it uh yes thank you we we certainly got a lot of hugs and kisses um and before i forget i i, I kept meaning to bring this up but uh funny gauntlet connection and i love to see like the gauntlet universe uh constantly be reinforcing itself but there's an extended discussion about boxing uh in it's always fair weather where uh we watched gentleman jim on this podcast involving of course john l sullivan and, and jim corbett who are uh, discussed at length in this in this film and celebrated so it was nice to see the old uh, the old kings of boxing back. dude the 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 casting of every single face Insane. in that boxing gym it's haunting to me like <laughs> again like they don't make faces like that anymore. No, absolutely and the, not. The idea in the classic studio system, like MGM, like these guys were just sitting around, like waiting, and it was like, <laughs> get the get the boxing guys, you know, get them all, like all of them, all of them, like <laughs> get me everyone, you know, every fucking gnarly cauliflower guy. Gym. The main boxing guy, Molly said, looked like Bobby Valley, Frankie Valley's brother, that is like now in the on cinema universe. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. All right. Andy, uh, next week it is your topic. What you got for us this time? Well, I came up with my topic, and I feel I felt really good about it, but now I'm nervous. Suddenly I'm, I'm like, racking my brain to be like, uh, I hope we didn't already do this. But I guess we're, like, getting to that point. We've done so many episodes that we might end up, like, covering territory we, we have before. Uh, and maybe not exactly the same, but it might be a little bit uh, similar. So if I'm, if I'm repeating something we've done in the past, like, forgive me. But... Uh, we're, we're at the end of the quarter here at DePaul, uh, and, um, you know, our break, uh, is, is it, it coincides with, uh, with a time of the year that I'm, I'm, I, I love, uh, one of my favorite holidays is, is Thanksgiving. And I, I'm, I'm of course very thankful that the quarter's coming to an end, that we have a break, that we get to move on to other things. And, uh, you know, this is just a time of the year where I, I really like to to embrace that aspect of it and, and reflect. So what I was thinking is uh, you two could bring movies to the pod that you are thankful for, you know? Bring me a movie that you're thankful for. You're thankful for its existence. It makes you thankful in one way, shape, or form. I will let you, of course, interpret it however you'd like. But, you know, to keep, I think, rolling with the good vibes that Hugs and Kisses got us on, uh, I'd like us to reflect on, on what we're most thankful for in the world of cinema. So, let's have a, a Thanksgiving 
next week. You're welcome. Gobble, gobble. (laughs) As always, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, etc. And send us emails to Marsh's Mailbag at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. If someone wonderful as she is can think I'm wonderful, I must be quite a guy feeling so unlike myself. Always used to dislike myself. But now my love has got me riding high She likes me, so, so do I It's night time I'm sitting in my room writing this and feeling sorry for myself I guess I'm digging it I've been thinking about what you wrote in your last letter About getting together on Saturday, June 23rd I'm pretty scared to actually meet you Scared that you might not like me or that all the feelings in me might not come out. He likes me so, I want so to love someone, but I've never gotten outside my head about it. Besides, I'm getting used to writing to you. It's funny. You know more about me than anybody else, and we've never really met. I don't understand you too well. You wrote that you have friends and that you've had lovers, and yet you said you're not at all that happy. That blows my mind. Right now, I wish there was someone to hold on to. Anyone.